Are you still fighting that battle? Or, or yes. No? Oh, yes. Absolutely. We're still fighting that wow. battle. You need to know why they're coming, who they're associated with, what weapons they have access to, because they're going to come back. Most of those stories, the bad guys are the ones who win. You're 100% right. I, I prefer to say, don't be a dumbass, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it's David Bumble back with a very special guest. John is the author of this book, The Art of Cyber Warfare. John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about how did you get to this point? And I believe it's got something to do with basketball, or you can go further back if you like. Started out my career as an engineer, uh, real passion for technology. I enjoyed what I did. When I got out of the military, I went back to school, became a Cisco network engineer, and did that for a number of years. You did CCNA, is that right? You bought a bunch of equipment, did CCNA. I did. The tech bubble had, had burst, and on eBay, you could get you know, $5,000 routers for like $500. You know, I was scooping things up, buying books and self-taught and going and take certification tests. And I was working blue collar jobs. I was military police officer when I was in the military, but when I got out, I had a lot of tattoos. And at the time, local police departments weren't hiring back then. That was in like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. So that was what I did working blue collar. I was like, I, I want to do something different. So I just started buying equipment and teaching myself. And I got, you know, I think I got a CCNA. I got a Microsoft certification in CSA. And uh, then I started working on the Cisco CCNP. So anyway, before I even had a job, I had all these crazy certifications, which was really, really cool because I was super motivated. And then I got into the field and I started working at a place called uh, General Dynamics on a help desk. They gave me a clearance and that clearance opened a lot of doors for me. As a side hobby for fun, I started doing like open source uh, research and I started looking at different threats I would see in the news and playing with different tools and just writing a blog about it. Well, long story short, I ended up getting recruited to work for the government. Uh, I, at the time, a lot of the uh, the groups from uh, non-US companies were, were starting to, to form programs that they eventually used for espionage. And they needed intelligence analysts with cyber background, and they felt like it was easier to take the cyber aspect, someone who was technical, and teach them the intelligence side. So they sent me off to school for that, became a signals intelligence analyst, uh, and I did that for a long time for for, uh, for one of the, the government agencies that's in the intelligence community. Uh, around 2014, I got out and I went into the private sector. So it was 2013, 2014. It was around that time when I really had decided uh, towards the end of that time frame that I, I wanted to get back to, to writing and I wanted to write a, a book or maybe write something with someone. I wasn't quite sure. And I remember I had get I gotten out and I, of, of the government side and I'd taken a job with a with a commercial firm. It was a it was a company that I'd always wanted to work for. It was my it was literally it was my dream job. And yeah. you know, I, I got there and I'm trying to get acquainted and you know, everything's different. In the government, you have all these secret squirrel tools that help you do your job and they make it pretty easy in comparison to not having them and then to rely on your technical resources. Because I had all these this background with open source, I had gotten really good in, in doing research as well as doing um, dynamic uh, malware analysis and, you know, even some static malware analysis. And anyway, I, I was pretty good for, for somebody who had been on the government side for being able to still do research. So I felt comfortable. But when I went into this place, they had their own proprietary system. They had built all their own tools. Uh, all their own sort of management uh, tools for data. And it was all command line driven and, and you had to um, 
you had to you had to manually input everything and i it was new to me you know i wasn't like a python guy didn't do scripting or anything like that at that point in my career so i was a bit slow now i was able to do it but but not at the speed that they they had they had wanted me to but they were like you know maybe this isn't the this isn't the the right role for you but you've obviously understand the threat landscape you can communicate it maybe uh we can put you on our team that's going to write products for our, our, our customers. So I said, okay, that still sounded interesting to me. I, I love to write, let's do it. And uh, they brought me in to do a writing assessment and they sat me down. And I remember I was, I was nervous. I had been, you know, reading about writing in an active voice and all this other stuff the night before sort of yeah. prep for it. And I get in there and they tell me to write about basketball. Well, I know nothing about basketball. You know nothing, John. DiMaggio. I mean, I know a ball goes in a basket, but I never played it. I didn't watch it. You know, fast forward all these years later, my kids are obsessed with it and I do now, but back then nothing. So, you know, I, I, wrote, I tried to write it, but I got so hung up on like what to do and how the game was played and the rules and trying to, you know, just trying to make it interesting. Cause I always like to make things interesting. And I ended up um, not, not giving them a good product. There was another analyst uh, that worked there and um, I'm not going to say his name only because I don't want the company to be divulged because uh, yeah. I, I specifically don't put them on my resume and things and I don't want it to come across as bad. But this analyst, he did believe in me and he was like, I want you to write my next um, deliverable. So it was on a Monday and that was a Friday. So I had to work on it on the weekend, but I just wanted my chance. He gave me it and I, you know, I wrote this thing up. He turned it in and, and of course our, our boss really liked it. And he told him, Hey, John wrote this. Well, they didn't believe it. They, him, they compared it wow. to the other product and they said, you know, you, you obviously helped him with this. This is night and day difference. You know, that Friday they showed up at my desk with HR. They, Took my computer. Um, I mean, they did. They did give me a severance. They didn't just throw me out on the street. But they, they walked me out and were like, you know, you're not working here anymore. It's just not the right fit for you. Um, you wow. need to improve on your writing skills, and you need to, to work on being uh, improving your skills as an analyst. And I was crushed because prior to this, I mean, I was a rock star in my career. You know, I mean, I'm yeah. not. It's not, I'm not patting myself on the back. I worked hard to do that, and I and I had such a passion for what I do. So it just crushed me. And I, I literally, I was that night. You know, I mean, I got kids. You know. I'm sitting there. I'm in my apartment. I'm I literally, I was, I was crying. Like I was like, I I was, it was the low point of my career. Like it was the low of lows. I was like, what am I going to do? I got to get a job. I'm, you know, do I need to like change Maybe I need to go back to doing blue collar work. I don't know. I did a lot of thinking that over that time between, you know, then and, and getting another job, it was over a couple of weeks. And what I had, um, what I had decided was, you know, I, I know I'm a good writer and I know I'm a great analyst and, um, I get goosebumps just thinking about this. It lit a fire in me. I was like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to get not only jobs as an analyst, I'm going to get a job as an analyst where the whole world sees my work. And I ended up working really hard. Um, I ended up getting a job. It was about a year and a half later, but I ended up getting a job. I, uh, I went back to the, to the government, by the way, after the, that incident happened. So about a year and a half later, though, my government contract ended. And um, again, I had been doing blogging uh, again on the side and with the government's permission. And I went to work um, for Symantec. Once I got there, uh, you know, I set the ground on fire, just lit the path to, to lead me to my success. And I had really good managers as well that helped me along the way. But I ended up on their attack investigation team, which is the team 
team that does all of semantics, nation state, and now ransomware attacks that you read about publicly, they do it a lot less now because they're a different company with Broadcom and everything else. But all the stuff they did over the years, like the Dragonfly, which was, you know, uh, Russian GRU attacking the, the energy infrastructure, um, just all sorts of Chinese uh, advanced persistent threats, just everything that we did that was public was the work that the team I was on did. And there was I think there was like five analysts and and like two, two uh, reverse engineers. So we weren't a big team. And it was sort of the elite team of Symantec that everybody wanted to be on. And, and I absolutely loved it. It was my dream job. But point is, I had I, I, I had a lot of success there. And, you know, there were two guys, um, Eric Chen and uh, Vikram Thakur. And it was my boss was was Vikram and Eric was was his boss. And, you know, they were both very encouraging on me to, with me to, con- uh, to continue my path towards writing my book. I wanted to be be with a publisher in the field. I didn't want to just do it on my own. Nothing wrong with that. But for me to prove what I needed to prove, I wanted a publisher to believe in me to put out a book because there's a difference. And so that's what I did. I started working every Sunday. I would I would spend a couple hours because every, every publisher is different, put together a publishing nomination package, send it off, get a rejection letter, send it off, get a rejection letter. And then I had this epiphany one day. I, I, I was sitting uh, I was sitting in my office and I looked over to, to, to my bookcase and I just realized that 80% of the books on my bookshelf are from No Starch Press. All my, my hacking books and things like that, you know, tools, open source or Metaspool, whatever it is, they're all from No Starch Press. And I was like, why haven't I tried applying there? And um, so I did that. I put put in a, nom- a nomination package, sent that off, and I remember it was about a week later. I got a uh, an email back saying that uh, uh, Bill, who is the CEO over at No Starch, um, you know, and his team, they wanted to talk to me about the book. And I was so excited when I got that email. And uh, so we we had a we had a conversation about a week later, and there were a few changes that they wanted from my outline. I'd submitted a sample chapter and an outline of the book. They wanted me to change things up to be more um, interesting to a broader audience and for yeah. the first half of the book, and and then to dive into the more technical stuff for the second half. It makes sense. They're a publisher. You want to have a broader audience. And it makes it a lot more interesting, to be honest with you. So that's what we did. And uh, my dream, if you will, came true. Um, the book exists now. I saw it in the bookstore for the first time last month um, on the 26th when it came out. I mean, it's just, it's like I said, it's been like a dream for me because it's something I've wanted for so long and it, and it really happened. I love stories like that. When someone tries to put you down, it can put that fire in your belly if you like. And I, it's an encouragement to everyone watching. On my channel, it's I, I, my motto is motivate, educate. It's such a great example of motivation. You went from blue collar jobs. Uh, you, you were someone, you know, didn't recognize your work. Uh, and what do you say to, you know, someone who's young? So let's say I'm 18, someone in charge doesn't recognize my capabilities or tells me I'm dumb or whatever. What would you say to that person? The first thing I would say is don't fall into the uh, pitfall of complaining about it because the reality is it's, it's, it's a cold world and nobody cares. That's, that's the truth. Whether it's to improve, whether it's that you want to show them that you really are good at what you do or whatever it is, you have to find that within. You got to teach, either teach yourself, take a class. A lot of people, not just young people, but a lot of people fall into that cycle when they get hit with something bad. It doesn't got to be as bad as like losing a job. Just be gets, you know, at work, something doesn't go your way or whatever. It's hard to take criticism, but don't let that, you know, affect you to where it affects your work 
work and now you're down on yourself and or you're complaining about that person because you end up in the cycle of now you're just this person that complains about things and doesn't do good work. So invest in yourself. But you got to here's the thing. And this is what I talk to a lot of people and a lot of people uh, hear me, but they don't hear me. You have to be willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Writing the book was the hardest thing that, I, that I've ever did. But throughout my career, I've, I've always been job and then working on whatever skill I want for to get me to the next step. And, you know, a book, same thing, work my job every day. And then at night I'm working on this book, you know, it's disappointing. It's hard. So, so while I say that it, it isn't just, you know, ah, I'm going to go do this. Like you have to be willing to put in the work, but, but double down on yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think, or your boss thinks at that point, you got a whole career in front of you, double down on yourself and do whatever you want to do. I'm going to be doing, um, a filmed recording to be on a, a TV show that's owned by, by Disney that's on ransomware um, in, in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm, I'm mentioning that because like, if you would have told me even 10 years ago that I'd be in this situation, like I'd say, there's no way. So wait, it, it, it sounds silly, but when people talk about their dreams coming true, like literally everything that I wanted is coming true. And, and I've worked so hard. So like to be at this point in life where it's actually happening, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. It, it, it inspires me to want to do more, inspires me. Like you talk about teaching, like I want to help people. I want to teach people. I want people to get to have the wonderful feeling and the wonderful life now that I've had. They're doing that work. And I've been through some really bad times uh, in, in my life. And, and it's just perseverance and hard work. And it's, it's gotten me here. I know it sounds cliche, but it's the truth. Well, I noticed you were working but then you kept on doing other stuff. Like you said, you were working on a help desk, but you were working on a blog on the side. You were doing your job, but then at night you were studying. This whole thing about overnight success. So yours was an overnight success. That took how many years? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I still do that. You know, you have to be passionate about what you do. So if you're in a field and you don't actually love what you're doing, it's not to say nobody loves everything that they do. I have plenty yeah. of things I don't enjoy about my job, but you know what? I, overall, I love threat intelligence. I love chasing bad guys. I love to write. I love to talk about it. And I love sharing the energy with people and, and getting my teammates motivated or getting um, a, a team, you know, that I work with motivated. And, and when you have a good attitude like that, you know, it just like they say negativity spreads, being positive and having that energy does as well. It makes everybody else want to be better, but working hard and, and having those goals and, and not letting anything stop you is what you do. Because even if you get fired from a job, this doesn't stop you from working on those skills or those goals. And because somebody doesn't think you do a good job, maybe they're right, maybe they're not, but you can fix that even if they are right. You know, I was nowhere near the writer I am today when I wrote that basketball essay. I was, in my opinion, was definitely good enough to have done the status quo for for what that job was, but I wasn't able to write a book at that point. But my brother's an English teacher. And when I got this, uh, when I got the book contract, I first turned in a couple hundred pages. And this is embarrassing. I don't know if I've actually told anybody this. I thought I was writing it in an active voice, but it was like, Every couple of paragraphs I would have, you know, I would have the wrong tense um, or, or the wrong voice. And I had to go back and figure that out. And I wasn't really a grammar guy. I mean, I went to school and I got a degree, but it's in computers. I didn't focus on the uh, the writing and the English aspect. So anyway, he's a high school English teacher. I had him help me. He helped teach me things. He helped review things and show me why this wasn't what it needed to be and how to correct this. And, you know, anyway, I, 
I, I did it. And after, uh, you know, maybe a chapter or two of him helping me, you know, I was able to write moving forward and I never had an act, uh, a, a passive voice again, unless I wanted it. And I always could look at a sentence and write it and know if it was active or passive. My point is, is that that's not interesting stuff. So it doesn't even matter if it interests you, if it's what you need to or to get to your goal, you just do it, you know? I love it. I mean, this is why I don't write. I, I prefer video because that active voice and grammar, wow, it's tough. Especially if you haven't studied for it, it's tough. Writing is like uh, therapy for me. Now, And I don't mean by the content, obviously, but it's almost like playing a piano. It, it's like a Zen moment for me. It's going to sound silly. Keys going, my fingers go across the keyboard. You know, my everything, your mind is just, is, is processing and fleshing out what you want to say. And you're just, you're creating this thing. And, and, you know, I like to just put on music and just go. And it is, it's literally, I mean, I find it therapeutic. Obviously not everybody's going to feel that way about writing. Whatever your thing is, you know, you just got to, got to go all in. And that means doing the things that aren't fun also. I, I don't like to say you're going to be the best, but if you want to be the best version of you at it, then you had to really put in that time um, and always evaluate what you can do next. You know, I'm at a point in my career right now, like I, I don't know what, what I'm going to do, do next. I've had a ton of, a very fortunate, had a ton of success, but you know, um, I might keep chasing bad guys and do this for the rest of my life, you know, or maybe, you know, a few years down the road, maybe I'll go and, um, you know, lead a team to do the type of things that I do. I, I don't know, but what I need to figure out that for me, but my point is that you're always evaluating what you want to do next. And it's not, there's anything wrong with being complacent. If you've gotten to where you go and you're happy, that's okay. But as long as you're good at what you're doing, but um, I'm just the type of person, like I always am looking towards what I can prove and what's the next step. Maybe they'll change someday, but I'm 45 years old and it hasn't yet. So I'm thinking it's not going to. I believe you never stop improving every day. Try and do something to improve yourself. But now we've been talking motivation. Let's get to education. I can see you're a good writer or a brilliant writer. The first part of the book is like a novel, more like a story. Could you give details about the book? And I don't want to give away too much like part one, part two, the differences and give us a, an idea of what the book's about. The first part is a combination of sort of a history of, of espionage and, and ransomware. Uh, when I say ransomware, I mean like organized crime type of ransomware, the big boys, espionage, nation states. I did a lot of the investigations that are in that book. Well, I don't say I, uh, if you look at the references, a lot of them are me. And even a lot of them that they don't have references references are because I worked on them in the government. And I just, I can only talk about the stuff that's publicly. So I just don't put my, my, my name on it, but they're, they're my, they're either my stories or stories that are important to understanding espionage, but they're cool, exciting stories to read. And, you know, the, the first part is supposed to just do that. It's supposed to enforce why you have to treat advanced threats differently. 90% of the threats that, you know, security analysts see every day are your low to mid-level mid threats that um, software automation, automated defenses are going to identify. Well, advanced threats have a human being behind it. And this is a, an argument I've had. It's much better now. To, I don't have to argue as much, but it's still an argument that you have to treat these advanced threats completely different. You have to handle them different. You have to you have to look at them like a detective as opposed to a police officer. You can't just stop the threat. You need to know why they're coming, who they're associated with, what weapons they have access to, because 
they're going to come back. Unlike, you know, just a police officer just wants to stop the crime now and, you know, let the courts work it out. Like that's the difference. So in these stories in the beginning is to really explain this is what happens when you don't handle these correctly, when you don't um, dedicate the right, the correct resources to it, when you don't investigate them and continue to look into why this, this attack is taking place. And these are the results and they're extreme results. And I think that first half really, really hammers home like, wow, this is a big deal that this happened. And wow, look at the ramifications because they didn't do X. And it's just so interesting because these stories are these really, really creative ideas that bad guys have had to, to defeat the good guys. And unfortunately, in a lot of most of those stories, the bad guys are the ones who who, who win, if you will. And because I worked a lot of those um the stories, you know, all the ones that I worked from semantic forward, and I was able to write about um, in, in, in great detail because they gave me, you know, um, the thumbs up with that when I worked That's there. Right. There's a chapter on how it affects financial institutions, and it's all about uh, nation states targeting financial institutions. And then there's other stories about like the history of ransomware, how these big ransomware groups that now do, you know, enterprise attacks started because they didn't for years and years. It was just the smaller attacks um, that, you know, on somebody's computer that they got through spam in their email. And now there are these organized criminal gangs in Russia that have, you know, treated like a business and have 200 people working for them and, and are taking down the world's biggest companies. So it sort of shows that evolution, how we got to there. And then we talk about election hacking. Everybody's like, oh, election hacking. But we only think about the U.S. The model that was used against the U.S., took place twice, many years before against other countries, at least in in, in the US, a lot of people aren't even aware of that. But all the signs, their playbook, everything was there for us. We just didn't we just didn't see it. So anyway, they're just all the cool stories in the first half. And then we get to the second half where it that's really for the for the analyst. First half, anybody interested in in security, espionage, geopolitics, that they'll they'll enjoy. And I tried to write it that way. Like a spy novel, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then the second half hammers home on this is how you do it. And one of the things that differentiates me from a lot of traditional security analysts is that I came from the government. And because of that, I was an intelligence analyst first. So I went to school and I learned analytical models and theories that prevent you as a human being um, from making the wrong assessment or from making a a call based on your gut or an assumption. I took a lot of the models uh, that I used and I've, and I altered them over the years to fit as I, as I left the government, things changed. So I made those models change to fit on how to do attribution on, you know, how to do different types of um, analytical workflows, just, just to keep that your data flow structure and to make sure that you're, uh, you know, keeping everything true and how to create a hypothesis and then use that flow to have data to either prove, disprove or to prove it. And then how to qualify that, you know, using different sort of classifications. I don't mean government classifications, but I mean, is this, you know, low, medium, high confidence, those sort of things. How to do time zone assessments when you have attackers um, come in. You can actually get an idea of where they are in the world um, by, by doing time zone assessments. And you do pull all this information from headers, from emails that come in, spear phishing emails. And then I go from that. How do you analyze spear phishing emails starting from the bottom up? These are the fields that are pertinent. This is why they're pertinent. This is the story it tells you. And this is how you can use it against your adversary. We go through all of these things and tools that I use, um, a lot of open source, some that are for pay. But I really wanted a researcher, somebody who just had a passion like me, 
to be able to get this book and, and be able to actually use the tools. And because you can't afford that if you're just a researcher you're doing it for fun, you get an $8,000 a month virus total subscription. That's yeah. just not realistic. So we talk about ways to get around those things and, and alternatives um, in addition to those type of things you could use in your work. And then finally, at the end, we have a threat profiling chapter. It explains how to do threat profiling, which is the behavioral aspect, which is very important with advanced threats because they're humans behind it. And then we do a use case. And in that use case, uh, we take a APT-28, which is a Russian GRU, one of their intelligence agencies. We take a spear phishing email. It's one email. We use all these tools and resources. You know, we take the data, we pivot, we collect, we analyze, repeat the process, document. And we're done at the end, when we're done with it, we've laid out this massive infrastructure, all these personas, all these spear phishing emails, all these organizations that were targeted that all sort of fit into a political playbook, if you will, to fit Russia's needs. And it's just, it's, I mean, I, I even get excited when I did it because I didn't expect it to come out that good. Like that was just, it was, it was a little bit of luck. It became like the perfect example. And it's a little bit dated, you know, it's from like 2014, the spearfishing email, but yeah. it was just, it tells such a good story and it made for such a good teaching example. And because it comes from a Russian intelligence agency, I just I had to use it. It just brings everything taught together. And uh, I think it makes for a nice picture at the end to, to really feel like you've grasped the book, if you will. I saw a five-star review on Amazon about the book and the person who wrote it. I can't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines that this is for CEOs, for analysts, for techies, for everyone. Is that right? Is that is that a good synopsis? It is. And I really wanted to inspire People, whether they were in just regular IT, whether they were in college and they were want to explore this, I want to inspire them. And I think that's what the first half does, because you could be at an airport or an airplane reading the book. And I know I'm obviously I'm going to be biased, but it's just like I, I've I've reread it. Like I, it, I just enjoy the stories and they're just cool, fun stories. It literally they're spy stories, literally talking about spies. There's part on the U.S. too, just because I worked for the U.S. doesn't mean I excluded them. My publisher wouldn't let me because I did exclude them in the beginning. Uh, so I had to, you know, it's got all the big, the big players, countries and stories of, of things that took place. And it's just really, really interesting. You know, I had to learn more about uh, nuclear centrifuges than I ever thought I would to write this book because of Stuxnet in the US and Israel and Iran. And, you know, so, so it wasn't just cyber I had to learn about to write this book. I had to really dig in because I wanted to know everything. There were some, some crypto spy aspects to this that go with the NSA back into, um, you know, like the fifties and sixties. And, and a lot of that stuff was declassified. So I was able to read all that. And there was some amazing stories in there that I was just like, wow, this is cool. So, and that sort of laid the foundation into where we go today with things. So anyway, stuff like that is in there, but yeah, this, the, the, the aspect of, I wanted like leaders to be able to, to look at this book and be able to understand it. I tried to write it um, in parts of it are very technical, but I tried to write a, a lot of it in a way that would be something that you know you could understand. So if you're a leader or decision maker and you have finding yourself facing advanced threats, I wanted you to know how do I think about this? What should my mindset be? What are the things that are going to be important? Um, and, and and how do I need to think about this as, as I move forward or or make decisions? So I, I tried to write yes, I, I tried to incorporate that into every chapter, not just to be in the second half where it's 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 for, you know does a lot of talk that would help. Help analysts, 
but it also is meant to, to take it to that next level where it can be actionable. You can make a plan. You can understand the relevant pieces to it that's going to help a decision maker. Because that's where I mean, that's where I am in my career today. I'm, I'm at that more the, the decision maker part. I still, because I love it, I, I all the blogs and stuff that in reports I write, write today, they're all free. They go out. My company just publishes them free. So I do that because right. I love to do it. It's really to get people excited and to teach analysts to be better analysts and to teach decision makers what they need to do and what they need to look at when it comes to dealing with what's probably going to be the worst day of their, their career if they're dealing with this. And, you know, since I've, I've written this book, I've actually gotten calls. Um, I'm not going to say the organizations, but I've actually gotten calls um, from organizations, from CISOs and CEOs on days where they just got hit by a major ransomware attack and their entire infrastructure is locked down and they don't know what to do. My company is not a ransomware response company. The fact that they're calling me on this day, you know, it tells me, I again, not patting myself in the back, but tells me that I did a good job. And it encourages me that I want to do more. I want to help them. But that that that's my point is the book is is definitely something that can be used as a tool and it can also be something that's used as just to get a really good understanding of cyber espionage and to enjoy reading the stories about it hello there you've got a new a new person in the room that's tyson so during the pandemic it was just me him and my, my two boys and you know they'd be downstairs playing video games or something and he'd sit right here and because i you know normally i, I used to work in a building every day i'd have people to talk to so i sit here and i he would just look at me and <laughs> I would bounce all my ideas and talk to him. People thought I was crazy. He's in my dedication to the book. He, he's in there because I literally, I talked everything out with him because talking it out helped me before I, I would write about it. Does this make sense? I know people think I'm crazy, but I talked to that dog. That dog knows more about cyber uh, intelligence probably than any other animal on the earth on earth. That's, that's brilliant. So we have him to thank for writing the book. Yep. And, uh, well, for you writing the book. No, it's, um, no, it's brilliant. I um, want to help people who perhaps are struggling with leadership. What's the difference between like a standard attack and like what you're covering here? And how can the book help someone who's got leadership who don't want to give them funding? Because you, you know that old, old joke, there's no money for, for security until they've been attacked and then there's plenty of money. So how, can this book help someone, you know, who, with leadership who don't quite understand? The biggest difference between these attacks is um, espionage or, or um, you know, e e even organized crime. Organized crime, like these ransomware gangs, they took, they learned from all the reports that we put out publicly about espionage attacks taking place over the years. They literally took um, those TTPs, those methods, and they incorporated into their own playbook. Ransomware was that it, it evolved into this thing that fit the pattern of nation state, because I was the nation state guy at Symantec, like that's all I did. And it fit the pattern. So we start looking at it, and I'd be thinking when I first started looking at it, this has got to be a nation state behind this, even though we don't normally see uh, you know, them doing it for financial crime. And that was, that was at that time. Now that's different. We've got North Korea does it all day, every day. When you have an advanced threat, whether it's espionage, I used to just be able to say espionage. I can't anymore because it's, it's not just espionage, but an advanced threat. The main difference is there is a motivated human or humans with an objective. And, you know, they're going to spend time on your network. They're going to try to get into it. Um, you know, we, we would see, I'm going to give you two examples. We would see uh, like North Korea when they were attacking the Bank of uh, Bangladesh, they spent a year prior, an entire year preparing for that before they actually tried to make the, even the first fraudulent transaction a year 
your traditional regular criminal, regular automated threat, whatever they, most of the stuff that you see, they're, they're not spending a day, let alone a year, you know, they're using a tool, they're send they're, they're weaponizing something and they're sending it out to, you know, 10,000 people that they got from a, a spam list. You know, this is a person with an objective. They're going to try to get in. And if they can't get into your network, and I know this because I, I as a defender, I saw it, you know, they're going to come back. They're going to have multiple campaigns. It's never once when you have a, when you realize it's an advanced threat and it's a nation state, it is, that's what they call it a campaign. There is going to be many attacks to, for a single objective. They're going to try to get in. They're going to target certain programs and certain people, and they're going to keep coming back. They're going to target them in their personal uh, infrastructure, their personal email, their personal accounts. They're going to target them at work. They're going to try and find vulnerabilities in, in your public facing infrastructure. You know, I, I did an assessment once for, for a company and one of the executives, they used RDP and he had a page with his username at the top because he couldn't remember it so that he could log in from home. And I'm just like, like this wasn't that many years ago. And I, I'm Given away who it was or anything, but it was, I was like, I was shocked. And in my head, I was like, this dude needs to be fired. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. This is why companies and, and our data is going out the window is because you want to can't remember your username and want ease of use. So you made a web page with RDP open for it. anyhow, uh, neither here nor there. Point is, is that people just don't get it. So that I wanted to write the book and explain like the advanced threats are human motivated. They're not going away. They have time. And when they're government um, backed, they have all they have, they have resources, they have money, they're developing malware the world has never seen. So uh, at least for a decent percentage of its lifetime, antivirus isn't even going to detect it because they're going to use it on small groups. That's why it's targeted. And if you're one of those groups, it's your, your software detection, your automated detection isn't going to, isn't going to flag it. And if it does, it may not flag it correctly. And it may flag it as a lesser threat because it identifies something minimal in it. And if you're not on your toes, it's going to go by, they're going to get in. And once they're in, and it's usually that's where, where we, where the, the job comes in with advanced threats. Honestly, yeah, there are, you can keep them out, but a lot of times you find them because they're already in your network. And at that point, that's where the hunt has to start. And that's where, if you don't get it, this is where the story goes south. Okay. So if you don't understand that this is a much different animal, if you will, than your traditional threats, because of the things that I just said, that's where you're going to lose because now you're not, as a leader, you're not going to dedicate the right uh, resources to it. And as a leader, people say to me, attribution, um, you know, they don't care about attribution. Attribution is extremely important with advanced threats. I need to know, let's say it's a specific group from North Korea that's in my network at my company and I'm a CISO or I'm running a security operations center. I need to know that, that attacker's preferences because they are humans. They're going to have preferences for tools. They're going to have preferences for scripts. They're going to have prefer preferences for how they do certain things like enumerating your network or turning off security controls. They're going to be things that are common to them because they do this day after day after day in different environments. And that's going to be different for, for different groups with different people. So by threat profiling, you create like a one or two page, easy to read. I call it, I always, I, whenever I talk about this, I reference like the back in the day, the GI Joe toys you would buy in the back of the box, the action figures, they'd have a little card and it would have like what they do, what their weapon specialties are, who they worked for, you know, and, and that's what this is. This tells you what the bad guy does 
does, what their you know personas are, what tools they like to use, where they like to move throughout your network, all that sort of thing is on there. And that's what I'm saying. The leader, once you understand it's an advanced threat, once you do some level of attribution to understand who that is, now it, you can plan on how to use resources to defend against them. And if you're already doing a robust cyber uh, threat intelligence plan, you're going to have these things because you're going to be doing it part of your day-to-day operation of having threat profiles, of, of having um, you know TTPs for advanced actors identified. And then, you know, so it's not like it just happens and now I got to put all this together. It's part of your program. So now when you see one of these threats, you've got an expert in the room because you've hired an analyst who's, or a team of analysts, depending on what your budget is, to handle advanced threats. And they know these attackers. They've got the profiles. So the, so the regular defenders who don't know them and leadership can read to understand this is who our enemy is. This is who our attacker is. This is what motivates them. And in the past, this is what they've gone after and what they've done. Now we can make decisions. How are we going to handle this? We know what they're probably going after. We know what they've done before. Now we can actually get our threat hunters in here and kick their ass out of here. If you are going to work, and and unfortunately, there's a lot of analysts. I'm not going to be negative for most of this, but I am for this because it's something that, that bothers me. A lot of analysts go to work every day and they sit there and they wait for their screen to turn red and tell them that something bad is happening. We are long past that. You should be excited and just as creative as the bad guy. You should be looking at everything besides those alerts. Not to say you don't pay attention to those, but what I'm saying is when you're threat hunting, you want to be creative. Let's think like a bad guy. Let's go look at things where nobody else would bother to look at because they're they're normally not you know signs that something's wrong and figure something out. Something All it has to take is one little thing that doesn't look right and it unravels a whole story. This is how I got into, this is embarrassing. This is how I got into to ransomware. I used to, I did. I, I used to, to to put my nose up to ransomware because you know it was up until 2015, uh, the the late 2015. Prior to that, all ransomware was uh, all of it. It was spray and pray, meaning mass mailing list for spam with some you know automated ransomware binary that encrypts your one computer. And most of the time, that encryption, if if you knew what you're doing, could even be broke. I think it was May 12th. 2017, um, my boss came to me and said, there's something going on. There's a big ransomware attack. I need you to look at it. And he walked away. That was Eric Shen, who I was talking about earlier at Symantec. And I looked over, um, there was another analyst that I worked with, a guy named Sylvester Segura. Uh, He was new um, to the team and I was training him at the time. And uh, I looked at him and I'm like, dude, why are we looking at ransomware? Like, I'm like, there's automation that can handle this. Like, why are we the ones looking at it? And my boss heard me and he kind of gave me this look. That ended up being WannaCry. Oh, wow. <laughs> I bought up putting your foot in your mouth, like the biggest attack the world has seen. And I was putting my nose up to it. You can't let yourself get to a certain point where you think, and I'm not saying I thought it was too good for, but you think something is not worth looking at, not worth investigating, or ah, this is just too low level. You have to, you have to understand that you know bad guys change, TTPs change, and sometimes they're going to reinvent the wheel, and that's what they did with ransomware. And you know that was 2017, but the signs were there in 2015. It was the they were in Iran, but the same same guys were the first group that created this enterprise ransomware model where they would shut down an entire organization. And it just grew from there. But my, my point is, is that, you know, because it wasn't prevalent and it wasn't what I was looking at every day, when that big attack happened, it I would have looked the other way if my boss didn't say to look at this. And 
you know, shame on me. But that that's a great story, though, why you can't do that. My job's really evolved. And, uh, you know, I do so much ransom where I really want to get more espionage. So es- espionage bad guys I need you to do more because I'm <laughs> doing way too much <laughs> ransomware these days. Uh, no, I love what I do. So I get really when I get in, in an interesting, creative bad guy, I get really excited. And, and sometimes people often people misplace that. All right. Do you are you like rooting for them? And I'm like, no, but this is so cool. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Going back to semantic, we did a study of uh, five of the big ransomware groups and we looked at. Um, from when the first time that they got on uh, a network, when they when they first got initial access to when they actually executed their ransomware payload. And we were finding that it went from three days to three weeks. And the average was about seven to 10 days. But my point being is, I don't think most people realize that there are, there's some, it's, they're, they're some of the best hackers in the world, but they're literally on your network for that long. You have that much time to catch them. And, and my team, we did. We caught them all the time. Garmin ended up getting hit because they weren't one of our customers. And I don't work for Semantic anymore, so it's not a sales pitch. But there was 30 other customers and there was like 27 of them were US companies and it was Evil Corp and they were in their networks and they were doing this massive campaign and they were staging and turning off the security controls and enumerating. And they were literally placing the ransomware payloads on all their key servers. Um, again, it was... 30 companies and most of them fortune 500. And we were able to stop that. And the one month later that hit the news was Garmin. Unfortunately, um, we didn't have anything to do with that one, but unfortunately they got hit and it cost them $10 million, $10 million. And that was the the first time we saw ransom go from hundreds of thousands to millions. But the point in the story is like, I mean, it used to be nation state was your worst threat. It's I'd arguably say that that's not the case anymore. Well, that's that would be your second worst threat because ransomware, not only they're encrypting your data now, they're stealing it. And now they're even doing third extortion where they're doing a denial of service on your on your infrastructure. So even if you do have some public facing infrastructure up, they're making sure your company, uh, your customers can access it. So. When people say don't pay a ransom anymore, I, I'm like, you do what you got to do to keep your company alive. I mean, it's just insane, you know, uh, w- what it costs to rebuild an infrastructure. Um, I think the the one that's been documented were, uh, I can't think of their name. It's a big, it, it was a big company and it was the Maze Ransomware uh, Group, also known as Twisted Spider, who did this. But they they demanded, a, it was a uh, like a Fortune 20 company and they demanded uh 14, 10 or $14 million ransom. And they decided not to pay it. And they decided to rebuild on their own. Um, a year later, a journalist contacted them and they were open and talked to him about it. And the the, the cost that, that it, what they incurred to rebuild was $70 million. Okay. Wow. Do you think if they could go back and pay that whatever 10 or $14 million they would have? I, I guarantee you that that they would. And then, you know, there's like TravelX. They got hit with, with ransomware. They handled it incorrectly. They tried to hide it under the rug. They tried to minimize it. They didn't realize the advanced threat that it actually was. They should have, my book wasn't out, but if it was, they should have read it and uh they got hit they went out of business or well they 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 sold off their business but yeah they, the company itself doesn't exist anymore because of that I, i'm going to use the very public version but there's a lot more examples that are not public where like north korea hit hit sony and just decimated them you know that happens a lot more than you think it's just that it's not in the act of revenge it's in the act of stealing their intellectual intellectual property and then communications that's another big one we we've seen a great example uh also russian organized crime this was like in 2014 
So this was really early for this type of an attack. They came into an organization, again, using tools and resources and tactics. They read from espionage store, uh, uh, reports that were out there. They got into this, this financial-based company that was publicly traded, and all they stole were the communications, communications between key leaders, decision makers. Um, they took it all, they read it, they understood, they knew the thing, private information where the stock was going, and they leveraged that to play the stock market and short the stock, and they ended up making wow. a lot of money, and they influenced this, this company's value, and they got rich. So that is that theft? It's illegal. It's You're still stealing something, and you're hurting all the people that put money into it. But it was, again, it was I'm not patting them on the back, but it was a brilliant idea that we as defenders, if we'd been watching people's emails that, you know, being stolen like that data, if we'd been looking at that a little bit harder, you know, we would have realized something is wrong, but you don't because you're thinking of bad guys. They're not looking at care about what our emails are. They're caring about what our intellectual property is or what our research is or what we're doing on this contract. You know, so you got to think out of the box, like I said, because it's always changing. Do you think leaders are more aware of these problems or are you still struggling to like convince them? As if you like, look, this is happening. Don't be um, naive. This is happening all the time. You're 100% right. I, I prefer to say don't be a dumbass, but yes. <laughs> you know, um, there's. I say that because it literally bothers me that we're in 2022 and uh, we're still having conversations uh, on this. Um, yes, it, it, the trying to convince people that advanced threats are different than regular threats and you have to treat them differently and you have to prepare and fund and staff for that. Um, th there's people who don't believe that they need to and that you know regular security products and things like that is all that they need and having you know a couple of analysts to deal with everything is the way to go. And you have to have somebody who specializes, at least one person. I like to have a team of three, but at least one person who specializes in um, in, in dealing with these advanced threats. And, you know, uh, having the argument that that's needed or not needed baffles me. And I, and I say, don't be a dumbass because pick whatever day you want. Go look at the news because there's something yeah. new every single day of where companies are being decimated, people losing their jobs, customers losing their data, the reputation of the company's shot. And you're arguing with me about this? Get out of here. Like you shouldn't be in the position that you're in. And there is more people that you think than you believe that are. A friend of mine, Chris Cochran, he was uh, he put a poll up on about threat intelligence and you know, it, it still surprised me. Like, I, I would say, I don't remember the specific numbers, but there was still like, it was like 20% of people that still didn't think that it was uh, a necessity. Um, and then there were other people that talked about how, you know, attribution wasn't, uh, w w they didn't find value in attribution. They didn't know, need to know who did it. They just needed to stop them. And I'm like, these are the people that don't get it still. And it's hard for me to believe that you're in cybersecurity and you still don't get it um, because this isn't news that just geek, geeks are reading. I mean, this is headline news when this stuff happens. I mean, I have the New York Times framed on my my wall here because it was the front page when Colonial Pipeline ha happened yeah. and I had been working on that and, and I got interviewed for that. But but my, that's not the point of my story. <laughs> point of my story is that that was on the front page of, of, of every paper across the country. And like, how do you not get it? You know? Are you still fighting that battle? Or, or yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. We're still fighting that wow. battle. Now, it is not as bad as it was, say, 10 years ago, but there is definitely every organization I go to, there are people that 
that just they it's, it's they just believe in the ones and zeros. They don't care about the human intent or, or origin around it, and they feel like it should be stopped with ones and zeros. And they just they just don't get the big picture. And there's always somebody there who is you are my enemy for today. You are the person that I is going to fight everything that I say tooth and nail, and it will just frustrate me. I'm grateful that it is far fewer people today. It used to be it was more than not. I I, I literally have a uh, I haven't used it in years but a slide deck that I used to apply to security analyst jobs. And I used to go in and it was all about nation state threats and the private sector and what happens when, you know, you, when, when you don't do things right. And what we could do if you'd hire me and, and, and put me in a job that I could be that guy to do this. And I always try and convince companies to let me be their nation state guy uh, and, and to, uh, to work that, that, that angle for them. And it, it very rarely works, but today it's something that is valued um, thankfully. And, and, more people get it than not. So, but this book is, is going to here to drive that home for those who don't. Um, it, and more importantly, even if you don't have that opinion, if you're just new to the field and you just don't know, you know, where you should stand on it, or you don't understand why people like me have strong opinions, such strong opinions on it, the, they're just really cool and exciting stories. There's a story in there about Google uh, in Iran, where the entire country, the government decided they wanted to manip- manipulate Google. And they did uh, through their infrastructure, they manipulated it so that they could essentially get all the account credentials for all, all of the user base in Iran. Legitimate users couldn't get to their email, but they were basically redirecting all that traffic so that they could use it as a kind of like what we do with Sigint so that they could monitor the data and and see what people were doing. But if people sort of realize if you use a VPN and you you have it pop out, say, in the U.S. or somewhere, you could still access it. And, you know, they contacted Google on the public, um, you know, support, you know, pages. At the time, Google did not uh, did not believe them. And, well, I won't get into all the details of the story because it's super interesting and I want you to read the book. But at the end of the day, everybody's mail was getting read and Iran did some pretty bad things with that. And there were a number of private companies um, in the food chain um, before you got to Google that went out of business because of it. Um, digital certificates, the companies and things like that, that just got destroyed. And, and this even included physical access. So when I say spy stories, like, again, I want to give the whole story away, but it wasn't just, you know, from a, from a cyber means of, of moving the traffic in a different way or things like that. It required physical access into a building to get certain uh, certificates and things like that. Anyway, the biometrics were bypassed. They sent people like, it's a crazy story. It's literally like you could make a movie about these stories. You, you mentioned the Ukraine elections in, in the book. Um, and what's going on in Ukraine is, is just another example, a real world example of, of this kind of type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a great example. If I was to write another book, I would probably put a whole chapter just about the Ukraine because we can go back and obviously, you know, you can go back to when Russia first invaded, you know, the Ukraine. But you 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 take those early steps of when they started to do propaganda campaigns against the Ukraine and they started to steal documents documents from from uh, political members and parties in the Ukraine and then add stuff to them and then repurpose them and send them out to the public where it really looks like their claims might actually be true. And the documents were authentic and they looked authentic and people believed it. And then they tried to manipulate the general public uh, in their their perception of the government. And then they eventually tried to influence their election. And then, you know, years later, we've got all the, the invasion. Anyway, my point is, is that you could look at that big 
picture, everything I just said and all the things that I left out in between. And you could write a whole book about how they spent, you know, 20 years really building up to this. Um, and in addition to that, a lot of the things that I just said, the, the propaganda, the disinformation, that was stuff that was taking place in 2012 and 2013. We just don't look at it. it but they did it to us in 2016. And it was the exact same playbook it, they took, except it was, you know, the Democratic National Committee and it was Hillary Clinton's campaign. And they took their data and they did what they did and they put it out there and they put their spin on it. And I'm not getting into politics. It's just the fact that's what they did. But they did the exact thing years ago. Like, how are we how could we not figure this out or be prepared for it? Like, it was all there. <laughs> this is not sponsored by anyone. So you can say who you work for, what you recommend. It doesn't matter. You're helping the community, if you like, or the people watching. I'm scared now. I Or my boss is scared. I've given him this book or, you know, I'm, a, I'm someone in leadership and I've, I've read the first few stories and now I don't know what to do. What do you recommend we do? Is it contact you? contact your company, tell us about your company, tell us about what you do, John. And like, what, what what do I do? I work for a company called Analyst One. I like to say that I, and there's another John, are like the, the real analysts of, of that company um, because the company itself, they make a product that, takes all your threat intelligence data, whether they're feeds, whether they're from your sensors within your environment, wherever you get all of your data, IOCs, um, your sensors, all that information goes in and they make it so that it's tailored to be human readable. So when you, for example, it does all the day-to-day stuff where, you know, trends and finding bad stuff and pointing it out to, for a human to be able to easily understand it, as opposed to looking through log pages for badness, it helps a human do it, but it also allows you to set it up for specific threats. So if I want to focus on like specific Russian advanced threats. And, you know, we've got all these indicators that they've used before and tactics they've used before. As I mentioned earlier, like doing threat profiles and things to make stuff for humans is very important. Software just takes it to a different, another level and automates that and puts it across the board, does automated threat profiles, does interfaces for you and things like that. So that's what my company does. But the reason that they they hired me, well, for one, the owner of the company works, we worked together when I was in the government and most of the guys in the company we all came from the same, well, we all worked together back in the day in the government. Um, but what I do is they were like, this is long before my book, you know, came out. They were like, you know, Hey, John, you know, you, you love, you're not, I've never met anybody who loves to talk about and, and write with, with, you know, espionage and cyber bad guys and all that. He was like, you know, why don't you come here and you run, you know, our threat intelligence and do all the, the research that, you know, you lead the research, you decide what's pertinent, you decide what verticals we want to focus on. And, you know, you do that direction. And at the same time, anything that you want to want to write or, or, or publish, um, you know, we'll put that out for thought leadership for free. You go do conferences, you know, get our name out there through Analyst One, um, through your good work. We, you know, no more, not a marketing thing or a sales thing, but just do solid work that we're going to give away for free. So you can be an expert in the room and then you could be an advisor to whether it's a potential customer, whether it's a customer, whether it's just somebody who calls, like I help companies for free when they call me and they're like the ransomware attack. That's not what my company does, but I still help them. You know, I've done ransom negotiations before I've, um, you know, told, given advice, worked with the FBI and then sort of explained in what I'll call easy to understand terms. This is what's happening. Even, even with cyber insurance, you know, a customer called me or they weren't a customer. Somebody called me because they'd read my report. It was a bank. They had everything. I'm not going to say what bank, but everything had been shut down. The customers couldn't even get to the ATMs. They called they, their cybersecurity company had given them a quote and they had, uh, it was an ungodly amount of money and they had all the stuff. And I'm like, well, if your goal is to mitigate this, understand it and get your customers back online, all these other things you 
don't need because that's not going to help you. So save that money there. Use that to, to get people on the ground to start rebuilding your systems. And, uh, and, and these are the things you need. So it, it might even be stuff like that. But my point, a very long drawn out answer. That, that's sort of what we do, whether it's um, we have their products. I, I do thought leadership. I do. I still chase bad guys and, and, and write about it. I advise. I help um, organizations when they're hit with espionage attacks or ransomware or they just want to talk to somebody that's got a lot of experience in it so that they can better prepare or build the team for it. When you have a boss and they're scared uh, of of these threats, which which is a good thing because we need to be because um, they're only getting worse. I mean, look at Costa Rica. The whole freaking country's you know, hosed right now. When we have that sort of fear, it enables us to put together in a program to react to the correct level. If we dismiss that fear or it's not a fear and it's just another threat, we tend to 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 mistreat it for what it is. So what I would say is every organization has different funding. You don't need to spend all your money on, on the tools. Your money should first go into your analysts. I love open source tools and I love open source. They're harder to use, but I love open source tools because they're free. And at the end of the day, almost almost every resource that's out there that, that we use, you can find you know, a, some, lack of better words, bastardized version of it that's open source and free that's just not as pretty that you can use for, for to get the same results. Um, so even our products, like there are other products that are free, they don't do anywhere near as well, but you know that, that, that exists. You don't need to have a robust security budget. You need to spend your money on the, the, the human capital. That is what's going to save your ass. The human capital, getting the people, get yourself a developer that can make tools that work for your own environment, use open source tools. I'm saying if you don't have the money to to purchase, you know, the, the ones that are obviously your, your fire eyes and your crowd strikes and all that are great, but not everybody can afford that. So when you don't, there's still resources that you could do to have a really robust, strong, uh, pr- protective layer with, but it all starts with the right person, an analyst, they're piecing it together. They're doing threat hunting. They're using the tools and the resources. Um, there's, a, you've got the whole MITRE framework out there. Um, there's lots of free stuff that that's out there that, that works very well, but the human piece is you can't, you can't just go and buy that. You got to find the right person. They got to have a passion. They got to be interested and they want to have to go out there and, and hunt for bad guys. We could make a whole book on just how to do this, but I'm just throwing out there these basics, but yeah, there's got to be a specific structure. There's workflows and routines. Again, I do, those are in, in, in the book. That's why I wanted to share that. But you could literally hire two or three people, stand them up, go through that. Take If you didn't want to reinvent your own, you could take the workflows that I have and the analytical models that I have right there. You could take the open source tools that I have, do all your, your malware analysis, everything. You could set up your own shop and it would be considerably less than what it costs to do it commercially because I made it for, again, researchers, people with a passion like me, they could still do it. I love that. I mean, I think that the, the concern is it's sometimes easier just to talk to someone. So if someone wanted to get hold of you for advice, um, is that is that possible? Can they get you on Twitter? What's a good way to you know, get hold of you. I'm on Twitter and it's John underscore underscore DiMaggio because that's the only one that wasn't taken. It's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. I think if you just put my name in, you know, to Google John without an H, J-O-N, DiMaggio, it'll come up my LinkedIn page and things like that. But if it doesn't, if you do John DiMaggio Cyber, it definitely I'm the first one that'll come up. You know, famous last names, killer for CEO uh, ranking in in Google. But I am pretty easy to find because of uh, the book and all the public reporting and things that I've done over the years. Even for work, you know, it's just my name at analystone.com. Um, people reach out to me all the time. The good thing about working in a small company is I have so much flexibility in what I want to work on 
what I want to do. So, um, like I said, when that bank called me, for example, I worked with them for weeks. I didn't charge them a penny. I just, that was the worst day of that guy's life. The guy was almost in tears. He was like, I'm going to lose my job. And I was like, I got you, you know, and I helped them went through, um, you know, their security tools, pulled out all the logs, pieced together, you know, patient zero and who went and what they were doing. Turned out that it was actually sabotage. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't for ransomware. Wow. There was never going to, they were never going to decrypt anything. They just wanted to, to, to shut the whole bank down. But I helped them with all of that stuff and wrote a report that they were able to use with their leadership and um, they didn't get fired. Um, but I was able to help them. There was another one, you know, a, a company that called me again, they weren't even a customer. Um, they contacted me. And this doesn't mean like if I get 20 requests, I can go help everybody. No, you, you're going to get hundreds of them. Right. Yeah. I had somebody, they got hit in all of their, their data was, was all locked down. And like you got to contact the FBI, the bad guys wanted to talk to them. So they asked me, I've got some, I've got a lot of experience with talking to the bad guys. So I, I knew because I always talked to the bad guys that whatever their number is, they will take way less. So we negotiated it down and, and they got, you know, the, the number was significantly reduced. But back to talking to the bad guys, we rely really heavily on our data for our threat intelligence to figure out the TTPs, to do our threat hunting, to see what the bad guy's doing. But there is a whole nother aspect um, that we can add to the, the, the bad guy picture that we're trying to view. And that's in the dark web. So this wasn't the case for, and still isn't the case for espionage, but with cyber criminals, for whatever reason, they love to talk about what they do. And so they'll go on the dark web and they'll go on forums. And there's different types of forums. There's ones that you have to, you can just register with an email and get onto. There's other ones where somebody has to vouch for you. There's other ones where they need to be able to validate that you've been on other certain criminal forums and have a history so that they know you're legit. And there's ones you can just pay money to get into. So there's different levels of access, but you go in there and you can sit there and, and you, you can look at the conversations. You can identify, here's a ransomware actor. He's clearly based off of these conversations and his recruiting efforts, one of the core members of this, this gang. And they are, they're, they're organized crime. They're gangs. They work together. And, you know, here's the key member. He's recruiting. Here's his recru recruiting post. Oh, they want somebody who's got experience with these exploits and these technologies. Okay, I now I'm going to document that. Bad guy X is going to be doing a campaign in the next probably one to three months trying to exploit these, these ex uh, vulnerabilities, and they're going to be looking on infrastructure for these targets. And sometimes they even talk about the, the, the verticals, whether it's government or the automotive industry, or what, they'll even talk about that in the recruiting. Um, and then you follow their accounts on different forums. They might have similar named accounts or things like that. And you'll see stuff like they'll go to what's called um, access brokers. Access brokers are bad guys that just go out, breach companies, and they stop. So they get in, they get the access, and they just stop. They don't do anything because they don't want to get caught. And then they go sell that access. So you follow the ransomware guys, and you go to the, the look at what's happening with the ransom brokers, and, and you document who all the ransom brokers are and what they specialize. And then you start to see other ransomware guys going to them. And you go back to, to again, to where they do the recruiting and the affiliates, the hackers for hire that respond to them, you document them and you start to follow them. And you visually can map all of this out because it's hard to keep up with who's who. And what, what I what I found what was really interesting is these guys will post their Bitcoin wallets and things like that to share. And again, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you got to work hard to get into these. But 
a time and an analyst can do it. And you, you get their wallets and then you can start to track and you'll see the hackers for hire are actually working for two or three different groups. And so you get their affiliations and you keep pivoting. And my point is, is that you get this whole other human side uh, or, or, or a whole side of intelligence that comes from a human aspect. And when you add that on top of the layer of all the technical data you already have, we now have a much more robust picture of who these advanced threats are. Um, and, and, you know, I've even applied to recruit to, to join some of these gangs myself, not as my, my normal name, but just, I knew I wouldn't get in, but I wanted to see what the recruiting process was. And, you know, like one of the interesting things that, uh, uh, it was the twisted spider, the maze operation They're they're now out of business or they've rebranded and moved on. But at the time they were recruiting. And when I applied, they started asking me questions that were all based on ro- Russian folklore. And they were asking me these questions because the folklore, there wasn't stuff that was out that you could just look up on Google. They did this to try to validate that you are who you say you are. I obviously wasn't, and they figured it out, but just that piece of information, just that little nugget was super interesting. And now I add that to how they operate. And that by itself may not do anything, but it's from it's good intel for an analyst. And it's something that I could hand off or a government agency come in and take, and they could leverage that. And if they want to infiltrate them, they know that they need to be up on that. So that's what I'm saying is, is you know, the whole dark web piece, there's a whole side of what I'm going to call human intelligence. Um, you can get the, the best thing you can also do. It's really cool is you'll get these guys in there. And let's say you don't speak the language or you don't have a translator that works with you. It speaks the language. You could go in there and just post an art, like where the ransomware guys are, once you track them, you know what threads they're talking and you just go post an article and put like a question mark and that article, whatever it is, it's going to poke them and they're going to respond. And they almost always do. And then you get their thoughts, uh, you know, well, yeah, we're planning to, to launch an attack that will bypass this on that industry. I mean, they literally just put it out there. You can even turn them against each other, uh, which is great. And you get them arguing. Like there was one, one of the groups, they actually posted a private chat log that had been done. uh, It was all encrypted. They decrypted it and they posted their private chat log between them and a member of another very, very well-known ransomware gang where they were going back and forth and they were arguing. And the one was accusing him of having rats, you know, that worked for the FBI that had been infiltrated. And the other one was saying, you're just trying to take our business and they're cursing at each other. Now I know, like, if we want to disrupt their operation, putting into their heads that there are, they've been compromised and things like that, laying that that sort of... um, you know, thought process is actually going to affect their business. So uh, again, that's not going to help you with defense, but that is really good intelligence to have. So whenever I get that stuff, I just pass it off to the FBI and, or I write about it, you know, publicly for free so people can get that information and use it. And there are products out there you can buy, like Flashpoint is, is one where they sell that. But while that's great and I love their products, nothing is ever as good as you having an analyst that's going in and looking for the specific information that's pertinent to you. And there's nothing illegal about engaging with these guys, you know, you're not taking part in hacking or doing anything. Now you could get yourself the things that I do. Like I've had death threats against my life. I've had the FBI show up at work and walk me out of the building when I didn't do this for a living. You know, I'd lost jobs because they showed up because I posted things. So you got to be smart about what you do, or you got to take on the risk. You know, I've got um, three identity protection services uh, that I pay for at all times because every day, you know, I have to worry about that stuff. So I don't actually recommend everybody to do that and, and post things publicly, but you can do that to gain information for your organization. You don't have to engage 
engage with the bad guys, you can just go and see what's out there. And there's still a wealth of information that you can use, um, again, to, to build a stronger threat profile to help you protect against these bad guys and to know the type of attacks that are coming and the technologies they're interested in. And you can protect yourself before these attacks happen. If I want to get into this field, any recommendations or like a path? Always nice, you know, people like ourselves who but later in our careers, how can we help the next generation? Like, what would you advise? You know, when I was getting into this, people didn't see the value in it. And um, today it's it's not as much as that, as I said earlier, it's just a little bit of that, but not as much as that. But today you have a lot more competition. Nobody did this when I was trying to do it. You know, when I left Symantec, you know, and I interviewed at different jobs, there were some, they, some places gave me like a technical assessment and they would like, you know, I, I'm not strong on like Python and stuff like that, as I mentioned before. Um, and some of the, the static, like, malware reverse engineering, I'm not as, as good at it as I should be. So I've, I've had places where they look at that and they'd be like, uh, we don't think that you're qualified for this. And then they'd go and they would like Google and, and look at my my work and see all the stuff I've done. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we're wrong on that. My point being, that's a weakness that I have. If you're coming up and you want to get into um, doing this type of work, it, it, it's not, you can't just be interested, though that's got to be the first thing. You can't just be interested in it and have like a degree in cybersecurity. You, you can just have an interest and you can go get certifications in it and you can then go start writing content and you don't even have to have your own blog, post it to LinkedIn, join groups on LinkedIn, go to conferences, talk to people, meet to people, uh, meet people. Maybe you're just in, I, not just in IT, I don't mean like that, but maybe you're in IT and want to get into security, but don't have that, that bridge yet. LinkedIn and writing and posting your, your thoughts, your stories, doing your own open source research, getting in conversations again, and just talking to people at conferences. You're going to, if you do that enough and you network and you, 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 you are vocal in communicating, um, you know, you're going to get, somebody's going to give you a job offer in, in a matter of time. You know, I didn't have a degree until I was 36 years old. You know, I was, wow. I had high school army. And I had my, those certifications that I got when I was, like I said, when I was working, you know, blue collar and just doing stuff in my back cave apartment with all my routers and servers and everything, you know, I didn't actually get a degree until I was at a certain point with the government. And they were like, we literally can't promote you unless you have a degree, you cannot make any more money. And so I went back to school and I got my degree. But my point in saying that I definitely, if you can get the degree, it checks the box, get that. But my point in saying that is even if you don't have that resource and maybe, you know, you can't afford to go to school, maybe you've got kids and you don't have the time to go to school. That doesn't mean you still can't get into this. You know, you go to certification path, you know, teach yourself, get those certifications um, and, and do all the other things I just said with the thought leadership. You're going to get a land in a, in a place. And it's it's not going to be, you can't expect it all to come at once. You know, you might have to, you're probably going to start off as a general security analyst and you're going to have to do that for a number of years. And, and I, I did too. And you got to work your way up. You know, I can say that I would not want to ever go back after working, uh, you know, all the advanced threats to being a general security analyst. And that's because for me, I find the advanced stuff so interesting. Other people don't like it because the advanced stuff means sometimes having to get on a plane and go somewhere or staying up all night working because something happens or whatever it might be. It's, it just consumes and, and, and eats away at your time away from your family and, your, and things like that because it's the oh shit moments when you're dealing with that. 
Um, it's just such a big deal that you have to. So it's not for everybody, but I loved it and I wanted to do it. But some people might just want to stay in regular, be a you know traditional security analyst. And you know this book will help you with that too. It'll help you understand the differences. It'll help you understand the basics of how to do attribution, how to do workflows, how to do basic analysis, which you don't have to do with everything, but having the understanding is just going to make you a better analyst. But by doing all these things, putting yourself out there, like I said, I, I love the fact that you, you don't have to like to write. You just put yourself out there. You know, it's okay if you can't write well. People are going to see your thoughts, especially on things like LinkedIn. They're going to see your thoughts. They're going to see that you're putting in an effort, especially if you're saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to get into this field. It doesn't matter whether you're young, whether you're old. It doesn't make a difference. If you could do, you can do a, a transition, you know, in, into this. I would think I was 30 years old when I transitioned from, you know, 27, 30, something like that. When I transitioned from, you know, the IT side to the, to the security side, if you will. It's all there if you want it. You just got to put yourself out there and get your name out there and meet people and show that you have that passion. I would hire somebody that is passion, uh, has a has a passion for the work, is creative, um, and 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 just gets excited about doing this type of work over somebody that had tons of of experience and knowledge um, that was just kind of bored with their job and was doing it for a paycheck go work somewhere else. I want that person that has that passion because those are the ones that are going to, that are going to set the, this field on fire. Those are the ones that are going to find the, and stop the next big espionage attack or the next big, you know, uh, cyber crime or ransomware attack. Those are the guys that are going to make a difference and gals that are going to make a difference. And, you know, that like just yesterday, I was talking with somebody on, on Twitter. She has a great following and she had just written a, a chapter of a book that came out. And I, and I was telling her, I said, you know, we really need more um, strong, uh, uh, females in cybersecurity, you've got a great following. You can write, like you should really think about writing a book, you know? And, and but that's my, my, my point is I love, I love at this point in where I am in life, like I want to teach people. I want to help people. I want to inspire people. I still want to chase bad guys, but I want to do those other things as well. Any certs that you can recommend? I mean, because it's, you know, I could write on LinkedIn. I could do stuff. I'll buy a book, let's say. I'll, um, Buy a few other books. I don't know if you can recommend some other books, perhaps in some certs. What was total garbage and, and a waste of at least my time when I did it was the certified ethical hacker. Everyone says that, so don't worry. I was expecting you to say that, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know. I didn't realize other people said that. I got that certification a long, long, I can't even remember. Probably when it first came out, I, it was way back in the day. Um, and maybe it changed. I don't know. But when I, when I took it, like you had to take a class before you could take it. You had to take their course. And in the course, all, they spent the whole time teaching us how to use these different tools to hack from Windows. Well, I'm going to tell you, nobody hacks anything from a Windows operating system. <laughs> okay, you're you're hacking. You're using something Linux based, or nobody's. Most open source tools are, are designed to be like like it was. It was insane to me. And I took the class. I took the test. I got the certification. And then they got compromised. They they made me. They insisted that we had to all give copies of our passport to take this, which is crazy. And then they lost it, and all the data went out the window, and our, my information, everybody else's, was exposed. So they just didn't do a good job. And and then they just wanted money in order for you to keep maintaining the certification. I thought it was garbage. You need to do your homework on whatever certification that you want to take. Now, I'm going to tell you a great organization that has a number of, of certifications that's very useful. Um, and that's sort of any of the any of the ones that are from SANS are good. They've got some great malware courses and tracks and specific certifications. ICS Squared has some good certifications from 
more general security. Like the um, CISSP, I have it. I don't love it, but you're pretty much if, if you're going to work on the government side in security, you have to have that. So just getting it over with. And it's not bad. I mean, it's 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 not that it's a bad certification. It just doesn't make you an expert in anything. It makes you know a lot about everything in security, but you're not an expert in one thing. But they have some other certifications that I think are, are decent. It depends if you want to go into being like a threat hunter or whether you want to go for like your more games towards like leadership and, and running a SOC. Those ones, I think the ICS squared, um, ISC squared certifications are, are probably better for that path. But if you want to be like more of a traditional analyst, you know, using the tools, the resources, doing malware analysis, SANS has a great track for that. Um, and that's that's what I recommend. You know, that that's the area where if I if I decide, which I need to do, um, that I want to get back, you know, more technical and, and improve on the weakness that I have, which which is on some of the those areas, that's that's the, the, the track that I'll, I'll go next. I just don't know whether or not, like I said earlier, you know, down the road here in, in my career, whether I'm gonna go leadership, which is probably where I'll, I'll go eventually, or whether I'm gonna keep doing this because I love it so much. But if I keep either way, I'm I'm probably gonna go and take one of those courses and, and get one of those certifications so that I can be better at doing, even if it becomes my hobby, um, better at doing that. And then I can also teach analysts and lead a team better if I know all those uh, all those details. So I, I think out of those two, there, there's lots of other ones out there and I don't want to bash more than one today, but there are other <laughs> ones out there um, where if you simply Google and look at people's reviews, you use Reddit and things like that, um, there are certain institutions, if you will, um, that just do cybersecurity certificates. And whether it's because I don't want to say they're just out for money. Some of them just might be new. I've had people talk to me and say, yeah, this was awful. This was terrible. Um, so my point in all that is there's a lot of bad certifications that just want to get your money. So what you need to do is figure out ones that work for you. And I just recommended some, but more importantly, go look at job requirements, not necessarily even the job that you want to get today. Maybe it's the one that you want to get you know, next in your career or down the road, but look, they'll put the requirements in there. They'll put certifications. It'll say like, you know, plus if bonus, if you have XXXX and the looks like certifications requirements, they might have certifications. If they're listing them, then they're probably decent. Not all the time. Cause we used to see certified ethical hacker all the time as one. And that's not, but my point is, even if I don't think it's worth it, if, if employers, lots of employers, if you keep seeing it mentioned in the roles that you're like, Oh, I'd love to, to get to be able to do that someday. Those are the ones you need to start working on, regardless of what I think or anybody else thinks of them. Um, but if you really want to learn something and be uh, intelligent uh, on the subject, go SANS. It's, that's the way to go for that. Um, and then I think there are also some really good um, OSINT, open source intelligence courses as well. Um, there's a guy, Michael Basil, He's got, and I don't get anything out of this, but I, I use this book constantly and I buy, this is eighth edition. I have all eight of them because he updates them. So if you're, this is more for open source, but it, this is, it has everything you need to keep you safe when you're in the dark web. All the tools that you could ever want to use to capture information for evidence that you're going to use in your um, in your investigations, and it has it has like a hot do-it-yourself virtual machine that you set up that has every tool you could possibly think of. All the open source tools that I talk about in my book, most of them, and it's I didn't copy them from him. He just he has a lot of that stuff in there too. He's got a whole book on it. I have a chapter on it. So my point is, he's got so much in there. Like that's a great great resource. And again, I've nothing never even met the guy. Nothing to do with it. But 
that's the first time I bought a book where I'm like, holy shit, this guy knows more about open source tools than I do, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, and how to do those investigations and how to track data. And he has workflows in there. So I, I love the, the the guy's book. Like he's, he's amazing at what he does. And he made, I'm a better analyst because of it. And I don't think there's any other book I can say that about that, that I've read coming up through the years that's helped me as much as that one. And then there's tons of things that are free. There's like Google has a lot of um, free courses, or at least they did. I assume they still do free courses that you can take. Um, a lot, a lot of organizations just will put out free interactive and, you know, visual based courses that you can just learn for free, you know, whether it's Python or whether it's learning some sort of a defensive technology. My favorite, the most fun thing to do, but where you can get in trouble is the um, pen, pen testing training and tools. You know, you can get yourself in trouble with that because a lot of people may decide, okay, well, to learn, I'm going to learn how to hack Wi-Fi networks. Let me see my na- my neighbors are doing. I'm not. I wouldn't admit publicly that I did that. But but if you if you get yourself in trouble if you don't know what you're doing. So you want to learn. You want to be smart. You want to set up a lab, not hack into your neighbors to learn how to do things. But it's that curiosity and creativity that has to drive all of it, or it's not going to work. But those are things that you can do. Um, have a lot of fun with it, and you learn a lot, and you just become a better analyst. And you'll get to the point where you get up every day, and you're like, damn, I love what I do, and I get excited. When when I go to work, I can honestly say that after all these years, I get excited about what I do. I love what I do. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I swear to God, I would still do this job. I, I mean, I just, I'd write more books for sure. I love what I do. You know, um, I'd love to get to write another book. I need a break because I, I when I wrote this book, um, so I got that the, the call in 2019 from No Starch Press. I started to write the book and then uh, I had the, the, the big setback where I submitted stuff and it was too many passive voice and things like that. And I remember the senior editor there came to me and they said to me, I know you want to write this book, but you know, you've got a lot of head. That's what she said. You've got a lot of heavy lifting to do to get this to where it needs to be. And a lot of that was because the way I was trained to write in the, for the government and the intelligence community, I, I was still, uh, it wasn't that I, I, I couldn't write. It's that the way you're taught to write intelligence reports is very different than how you write for the general public. Yeah. Meaning I had to learn how, like you started to say, like, and I appreciate that I was a good writer because the, the stories were so interesting. Uh, well, in the in the government, it's the opposite. They're very dry and you just got to tell what the point is. So I had to get away from that. And her point was, she said to me, not writing for, for at a public level is not for everybody. You've got a lot of heavy lifting. And her context was that I, you know, maybe I, it may not be my thing if I don't want to put in the work. And that's where I went and got my, my brother to, to start teaching me. While I could write well for intelligence reporting before, now I can write well at a public level. And in this job that I'm at, at Analyst One, even at, at Symantec, I couldn't always put my name on it, but even there and here, like writing at a public level, I've just gotten really good at it. And 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 I, I love the fact that people come and say to me, you know, I follow your work. I love the stuff that you write. Like I write a 60 page report and people actually read it and find it interesting because I tell the story and I do it in a way that, that folks can understand and, and they enjoy. So my point being is that Writing it was hard. And when I got past that, I thought I was over the hump. And that's where it really got hard because the pandemic kicked in. So now my kids came to live with me full time because um, me and their mom are not together anymore, but she works for the government. She had to be in a building every day. 
I work from home. So the school was canceled, pandemic, everything shuts down. They came to live with, instead of being with me just on, you know, Wednesday and every other weekend, they're with me all week, you know, so I'm having to take care of them, do all that. I'm working my day job. Then, you know, I'm finishing at five or six, spending time with them until nine or 10. And then I'm working from, you know, nine or 10 at night till one in the morning. And I religiously did that six days a week. And I, I did that for, you know, what a year and a half, two years until the book was done. But it was the hardest thing that I, that I've ever done. And it took a lot of discipline. So I really want to write a second book on ransomware. Like I really, really want to, but I want to do it because I love what I do and I'm super inspired, but I also know like I need to take a break because uh, there's a lot of things I want to do with my career and I need to figure that out before I start writing something else. But, um, you know, I, I, I always want that. Let's just say, you got to have the passion. You got to want to do it, but writing a book is, is really difficult. Um, but if you, if you put in the time and dedication, you know, you, you can do it. Um, it just, you got to be ready for it because it's a ton of work. It was harder than, than going to college and I hate school with a passion and it, you know, this was harder than that. John, that's amazing. I really, really want to thank you, you know, for sharing so much. It's been a long interview and I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Because I think you gave a brilliant speech at the end here. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, if you are in this field, you know, you are, whether you realize it or not, you're literally trying to stop bad people from doing bad things. Uh, that at the end of the day, at the most basic level is what you're doing. And you have to take that very seriously. But you have to come to work and you have to be excited and passionate about what you do. Um, and that is key. If you lose that passion, then there's something wrong, whether you need to be in a different role or maybe you just need a different challenge or a different company. But it is vital to and everybody gets motivated by different things. I get that. But it's vital that you surround yourself with a with a team or you develop a team of people who are the folks that like to put puzzles together, the people who like to take things apart to figure out how they work. Like it's that curiosity and that creativity um, that drives the best of the best in, you know, this field. And so I, what, what I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you've lost that, figure out how to get that back um, or, 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 or find a role where it's not as vital because it's, you're doing something that's too important. You know, you get a compromise, you could lose millions and millions of dollars from your company you, in, in what goes out and the damage done. You could lose all your customers' private sensitive data. And, and you know, there's so much damage and it's just, there's, there's so many bad things that can happen. And, you know, I, I just, when people don't take their job seriously, I have a big problem with that. And that's where if I do go, you know, hardcore and, and wanted to step up into like a CISO role someday or something like that, I think that's the biggest thing that I would have to teach myself is I can't hold people accountable to, to where I want them to be because I have such a passion about what I do, but you need to have people that do have that passion and that do want to continue to get better. And they do want to find the creative ways to stop bad guys that think out of the box and are, are that innovative threat hunter. Like those are the guys that you want to have uh, on your team working for you. So for people who want to get in that role, be that person, have that energy and work hard at it and you'll get there. John, I really want to thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Hey!